0: Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things Human Factors,
1: Psychology and Design. Hi everyone, this is Svi Spivak reporting live from Seattle, Washington for the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society 63rd Annual Meeting. And I have the pleasure here of sitting down with Dr. John Lee, Professor of Industrial and Systems Engineering at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Welcome.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, so uh, as I'm sure the audience is aware, um, John is the author of the Introduction to Human Factors book, textbook uh, and author of the prolific uh, and seminal paper on trust and automation with Katerina uh, C. Yes. Um, and so maybe you can just tell us a little bit about how you came to work on these concepts of trust and animation, uh, where your passions led you, how how your passions led you down this path, and maybe how you got involved in Human Factors to start.
0: Yeah, so I started out um, as an engineering student uh, at Lehigh University, doing a degree in mechanical engineering, but then also doing a degree in psychology in a five-year arts engineering program. Initially thinking of the psychology degree just as a hobby on the side, I took that degree to broaden myself and because i enjoyed it and it was only about uh, i guess when i was a junior that i realized you could put the two fields together into the the area of human factors so that's where i started Um, and then i I went to the university of illinois and uh, interestingly when i first started with neville neville murray came into his office and he said i've got two projects one on mental models one on trust which one would you prefer to start working on? And I said, basically, definitely not the trust <laughs> research. Yeah, And then ended up um, doing the, the mental model research for my master's degree and then gravitating into the trust work, which has kind of pulled me back um, periodically over the
1: years. Yeah. Nice. Interesting how that works out, the thing that you are more averse to, you end up uh, being more attracted to. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah it's definitely a, a love-hate relationship because it, um, trust is such a squishy and hard-operationalized concept to the point where it can be less useful in terms of explaining things because it can explain everything. But at the same time, I think it is really fundamentally important in how people relate to each other, but also how they relate with increasingly capable
1: technology. Hmm. So have you done any work or collaborated with Colin Drury on his uh, empirical scale of trust? And
0: I, I have not. Oh, uh, I've so. talked with uh, Bazance hmm. a number of times about that scale. and We're currently doing a, a review of trust scales with the hope of uh, providing some guidance to people on which of the 25 different scales to use, and that scale is one of the dominant ones in terms oh. of the number of people who use it. Neat. But, uh, yeah.
1: And then, uh, if I understand correctly, you also have, I mean, trust is your main, or one of your main areas of study, but you also look into driver distraction and human error, and is it safe to say that that's kind of the, the way that you're, you're going now, is the driver distraction topic? Um,
0: not, not really. I, I think generally my research, I'd characterize it a little bit more abstractly as technology-mediated attention. So thinking about broadly what are the factors that guide people's attention to things in the world or away from things in the world, certainly driver distraction is uh, an instance of that. But trust is also one of those um, constructs that influences what people attend to, what people rely on or not when they intervene. Um, so a lot of my current research has to do with automation and in the car and what happens as cars become increasingly automated but then still require people to intervene. Um, so that's a, a lot of my research. But recently I've started doing some work with NASA as well. So it's not just driving um, it's not just NASA but also healthcare research at the University of Wisconsin healthcare is huge. So
1: and, but, it, but it's typically revolving around that idea of trust or the, the construct, as, as you put it, um, yeah. and how people perceive automation and trying to bridge that gap. it um, seems to be a theme in this in this year. I mean, in my experience, that seems to be a theme of this year's uh, meeting is, is yeah. this idea of trust.
0: Yeah, trust has certainly become, it seems, more popular over the last um, 10 years, really. And I go to a lot of sessions here, and they're talking about trust and automation. So that's kind of pulled me back into it. And another thing that's pulled me back in is this project with NASA, uh, looking at how to measure and manage trust in intelligent agents, trying to develop a better relationship between astronauts and the agents that might be designed to support their work.
1: And so is that the work that you're here presenting on? I know you had a poster yesterday, and when I came by you were busy talking to people, but it looked like some semantic or dendritic analysis
0: of work and... Kind of vaguely, um, over the last about 10 years I've been increasingly fascinated with um, advanced data analytics and in one instance of that is text analysis and the poster I presented yesterday was a a map of the the field of human factors based on abstracts from 12,000 papers Using the computer to read the abstracts, make sense of them, identify themes or topics, and then present that as a network diagram, sort of an informative wordle. Um, That hobby turned into a project with NASA where we're using text analysis based on the conversation between the astronaut and the agent to understand instances where the agent's behavior is diminishing the trust of the astronaut in the agent or leading to excessive levels of trust. And so that hobby turned into uh, a really interesting project.
1: It invokes images of uh, HAL uh, in 2001, Space Odyssey.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's um, surprisingly similar in the aims, actually, in terms of the mission its to support the mission to Mars, and you need intelligent agents on board that um, spacecraft, because once you go out of easy communication with ground control, you lose the support that they provide. The intelligent agent can um, provide that support, just like in 2001, A Space Odyssey, Hal was the agent that was providing the moment-to-moment support that was lost when they went out of Earth's orbit. So very similar. And so in a way, we're trying to avoid that dysfunctional relationship between the astronauts and HAL. We're trying to create a more, um, I guess, trustworthy HAL and um, a greater degree and hopefully greater um, appropriateness of the trust in the automation. So, yes.
1: so that must be exciting for you then, being able to um, tap into this new domain, I guess. I mean, it's not so new in the sense that it's a different, you're still dealing with transportation in a way and automation, but it's <laughs> space transportation, right? Yeah, and so, has that been a hobby or a passion of yours, uh, thinking about space and
0: well, I dealing think with NASA? My initial reason for being an engineer, like for many people, I was inspired by the astronauts, went into mechanical engineering because I knew that uh, I'd like to go to space and be like a mechanic on the space station. And um, that Didn't work out. I sort of gave up on that that dream pretty early on. But it was the impetus for me going into engineering. And so it is kind of cool to be able to contribute in a small part to that enterprise and to meet some of the uh, amazing people involved in that. Uh, The person who's coordinating our research is a retired astronaut, um, Steve Robinson. And just an incredible person. Wow. He visited uh, me and my students earlier this year, and we had a chance to talk with him, and, um, discuss some of these issues with him, and just uh, really a pleasure. Um, the highlight of my year, really. So, oh, nice. Yeah,
1: yeah I, I've met a couple astronauts, Canadian astronauts, and yeah. they just seem like 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 perfect human specimens. You know, got <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> perfect physique and intelligent and like good looking, and it's just fascinating that yeah, they're doing that. They
0: um, they have a perspective on the world, quite literally. <laughs> yeah. First-eye view, if you will. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, and I think that's, like, there's the physical remove of being in orbit, looking down and seeing something none of us can see. But that perspective, I think, translates into a, a really meaningful, different view of humanity than, than we might have looking up. Um, so it's, a, it's really a pleasure to be able to talk with him and, and uh, be able to work on this project. Nice.
1: So on that note, and I guess related to your, you know, your, your work on trust and yeah. the idea of calibrated trust, right, where the system's capabilities match the user's expected capabilities or performance. Yes. Um, yeah. Could you provide maybe an example of, in current technology, um a good example of calibrated trust and perhaps a bad example uh yeah. not pointing not saying any names <laughs> perhaps but um just i guess well, technologies that are on the right path and because like i said i spoke to uh, i spoke to amy yesterday actually and colin and amy pritchett and yeah, this this yeah. concept came up a lot actually this human automation and you know giving more power back to the human and and taking that supervisory control um and kind of rethinking it and you know giving more power back to uh, the humans so yeah
0: um so I think, like many Human Factors people, we focus on the uh, mishaps and the cases where there's a, a miscalibration of trust and it leads to to problems, and so those come to mind more easily than the cases where they're well calibrated and the mishaps don't occur. Um, but I think with technology going into cars, you see the potential for over-trust, and um, a number of instances with with Tesla in particular where you've had um, crashes that have occurred because the drivers have not been um, seemingly looking at the road vigilant and maybe giving over too much um, control and responsibility in a sense to the, the car. And uh, I think there you have a case where technology is very capable, amazing, it works. Incredibly well most of the time, but then occasionally fails, and it's exactly that situation that is is really challenging for people to deal with. It promotes a high level of trust, where the trustworthiness of the automation is maybe relatively true, low, and that mismatch, poor calibration, uh, can lead to disastrous mishaps. So I, I think that's a an instance where trust calibration. Um, is imperfect, Um, not for all drivers, obviously, but for some in some situations, and that can be tragic. So
1: So that leads me to my next question, actually, which was, I guess, where you see the future of autonomous vehicles and and humans' trust in autonomous vehicles going, considering that seems to be the, the path we're heading towards.
0: Yeah, so I think it's really important to distinguish between autonomous vehicles that drive themselves and may not even have a steering wheel, um, with those like Tesla and uh, other more conventional vehicles that are on the road today, where the automation may support you, but you as the driver still remain responsible and need to be able to take control at certain parts of the journey. So I think those are very different, and the issues of trust are very different. So with the um, automation-supported vehicles like the conventional cars on the road might have adaptive cruise control or some sort of steering assist system. Those situations, I think it's a problem of overtrust, trust more likely. But in the future, as vehicles like the uh, driverless vehicles of Waymo, when those go out on the road, I think the difference is going to be under-trust. People will feel discomfort in giving over control to these vehicles. And I think that's kind of the opposite problem. How do we build trust? How do we develop trust in those systems and the companies behind
1: those systems? So it's it's about kind of maybe these companies being more I don't know, explicit or interactive with their users, and sort of maybe engaging more and, and building that trust kind of from the ground up, rather than just throwing them into this new environment. Like my dad, yeah. I can't imagine him getting into a self-driving vehicle and or, you know, yeah. um, and trusting that fully. So.
0: Yeah. So I think there's a lot of unknowns in terms of how people will respond and what sort of design elements will engender greater trust and lead to acceptance of the vehicles. But one example I like to use is that of the elevator. Um, And on many elevators, most elevators have a closed door button, almost all of them. Relatively few of them are wired so that when you push that button, anything happens. Really? But the button is still there, and it makes us feel good because when we push it, we feel like we're controlling it. And I believe that the sense of control is really critical in how people perceive risk and how people accept technology uh, taking some degree of agency from them um, taking control away from them and giving them a bit of control back can make a huge difference and I think we see that with elevator door buttons uh, giving people that that control um, but I think that's one example of where the design of the automated vehicle should think about control both as a necessary means of dealing with the variability of the roadway. And I don't mean necessarily control with the steering wheel, but some degree of control that allows the person who's primarily a passenger maybe to nudge the vehicle in certain ways to negotiate situations that weren't anticipated by the designer, but also to nudge it to be comfortable for them, given the road context that control in itself could be extremely helpful in promoting trust.
1: So is that perhaps like controlling the level of automation, uh, you know, to be fully autonomous versus not, or, you know, being able to just have suggestions or alternatives offered to you and execute? I mean, it's also a time-critical situation uh, environment as well, right? So we have to be conscious of that.
2: Yeah,
0: I'm thinking for the the fully autonomous driverless vehicles, um, there the control I don't think would be taking over of driving. So it's not going to be changing levels of control that way, but I think it's going to be maybe more at a strategic level of what route to take, having some autonomy of the driver and choosing the route. Um, Also maybe having some control over how quickly it breaks to a a stop. Um, So maybe where it's positioned on the roadway a little bit. So there's the engineering optimal for safety, but then there's the comfort and the politeness that the, the rider might want to provide to the, the surrounding vehicles. Um, those things, if you draw a safety boundary about what should be controlled because you want to make, maximize safety, there may be certain degrees of freedom that could be engaged by the driver um, to exert control, make things more comfortable, and uh, that I think is somewhat unexplored. And uh, maybe just my academic perspective on it might be interesting to investigate. But I think this issue of control uh, is critically important in how people perceive risk. And as you go into, from the front of the car to the back of the car, as you take away the human driver and replace it with a mysterious automated vehicle driver, the perception of risk changes qualitatively. And there's a concept of dread risk that I think becomes relevant where the risk when you're in control and you understand the process, moving towards a situation where you're not in control and you don't understand the process, the difference in the perceived risk can be up to a thousand times greater. So what people will tolerate when they're a driver is very, very different than what they might tolerate as a passenger in the back with a self-driving vehicle.
1: Must be neat to uh, see that tied back to, I think it was in 92, you had a paper on trust and control strategies as well as functional allocation of human-machine interfaces yeah. and kind of seeing that resurface now in this new age of autonomous vehicles and yes. those concepts still holding up, I guess, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think, interestingly, the, the idea of dread risk comes out of um, people's fear of nuclear power and um, how that can be dealt with. And it could be argued that people justifiably have dread risk about nuclear power because it is potentially dreadful. uh, The consequences are huge if things go wrong. Um, But that is what I was doing my dissertation around in terms of uh, process control and minimizing risk of complicated, potentially catastrophic mishaps. Um, And now seeing that play out Driving is is fascinating. And I think with driving as well, you have not just the driver as being somebody you need to garner acceptance of these vehicles, but society must accept them as well. And so it's not just the driver feeling comfortable and trusting the vehicle, it's the pedestrians and other drivers feeling comfortable sharing the road with the the vehicle
1: nice yeah and i saw some some interesting work here so far already on on biomotion of pedestrians and bicyclists and sort of um you know thinking about how to prevent car accidents and fatal injuries like that so that could be an interesting connection with with that
0: yeah absolutely one of my graduate students josh Hoffman or josh had another graduate student, Josh Hoffman, but uh, Josh Dohmeyer is a graduate student working with me who's doing research on how um, automated vehicles' uh, speed be- behavior, say coming to a stop at a crosswalk, can be used to signal the pedestrians uh, in terms of what it's safe. say. So rather than relying on um, a robot waving or maybe more practically um, lights, and messages on the vehicle conveying that information through the kinematics of the vehicle's trajectory coming into the stop. Um, So signaling, communicating with the pedestrian but also acting more generally in a polite manner. And I think designing automated vehicles that are perceived as safe, that communicate um, unambiguously and are seen as polite is I think going to be very important for the Pedestrians and society to trust these automated vehicles. So, so trust
1: that. and affect and kind of their relationship, right? Yeah, no yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And um, you know this issue of biomotion oh, yeah. for the pedestrian side, for vehicles to recognize <laughs> that and understand that it. That's going to be important for the vehicles to figure out what the pedestrian is doing, so that they can do the right thing. And the biomotion that you build into the vehicles will help pedestrians figure out what the vehicle is doing so that they can do the right thing. So it's a a mutual communication negotiation that occurs that's really complicated and we do it every day without thinking too much and generally are very successful. It will be interesting to see how automated vehicles uh, deal with that challenge.
1: So just on that last note, um, on the future of autonomous vehicles and and its you know, the, the role of human factors and deciding yeah. the safety of that. Um, maybe we can end off on one message you might have for young uh, engineers, you know, uh, mechanical or industrial or otherwise, that are wanting to get in the field of human factors and, and where they could really, you know, just a message in, in general yeah. or related to automation. And...
0: Yeah, I think in general, engineering is super exciting because you're changing the world. And I think sometimes we change the world in ways that are unanticipated and in the instance of automated vehicles there's a potential through maybe minor design changes that could profoundly influence society so for instance the degree to which automated vehicles move towards vehicles that are rolling living rooms designed around a single occupant or maybe two occupants a family maybe versus shared rides, that could be transformative to society. The dystopian view would be a bunch of rolling living rooms that 50% are unoccupied and these zombie cars are circling the block waiting for their occupant to get in. Uh, and that undermining public transit and disadvantaging those who are already mobility disadvantaged. The utopian view would be shared rides, inexpensive transport for those who don't have inexpensive and good transport and enabling people who are without transport to have transport and reduce congestion, reduce energy use but that shared use depends on design decisions engineers at multiple levels make and some of those decisions might seem trivial but their consequences could be huge so I would encourage engineers to be thinking about the societal implications of what you're doing and really taking a systems perspective to try and think about the unanticipated as you're designing.
1: That's a great, that's a great message. And I think we can all agree that a uh, utopic view of a utopic future <laughs> is looks better than a dystopic one. So
0: Yes, indeed. Yeah.
1: yeah. All right. Well, with that, John, I'd like to thank you once again for being on the podcast. And uh, if listeners want to get a hold of you or find out more about your work, where can they
0: you refer to? Um, yeah, so I guess I point people to my Twitter feed. I, I post really boring tweets that I'm using as input for the, the next revision of the textbooks sort or of notes for the oh. textbook, examples of human factors within that. Uh, my Twitter handle is and